We want to be a sizable company that really can make material change and continues to innovate at this intersection of sustainability and design and technology, serving a customer base that is curious, that cares, and that you know expects their product to actually make a difference in the world. Um, but we will grow insofar as our positive impact grows alongside us. And that's something that is very, very important to me. What does it take to walk away from a successful career in investment banking to form a women's sustainable fashion startup committed from the outset to sourcing responsibly grown, ethically manufactured materials, blending classic design with leading edge technologies while building a platform for education and advocacy? Well, confronting fear, embracing uncertainty, accepting failure, trusting in serendipity or remaining resilient, steadfast and focused on the bigger mission are all characteristics that enabled this week's guest, Vanessa Barboni-Halleck, to launch Another Tomorrow, what New York Times described as a brand as ethically minded as it is refined. In this fascinating and broad-ranging interview, Midwest-born Vanessa Barboni-Halleck covers everything from her early life and architectural ambitions to her journey to an investment banking career and why she changed course to launch her groundbreaking sustainable women's fashion brand, Another Tomorrow. Vanessa describes the impact her free spirit artist mother and sociology professor, wannabe hippie father, had in cultivating her curiosity and the creative environment of constructive play that built her belief in the sense of the possible. Vanessa explains the circuitous path she took through education the life-altering impact of her mother's tragic death when Vanessa was 19 and how that event set her on a path to banking and the inner conflict she experienced from having been raised in an environment of conscious capitalism and how after quitting the industry three times, she finally found purpose in her new entrepreneurial endeavour. In 35 minutes, we dive deep into Another Tomorrow and why Vanessa focused on the sustainable fashion business, the challenges she faced along the way and why she's built a business grounded in animal, environmental and human welfare and how she's using technology and the power of storytelling to deliver supply chain transparency. We also cover her commitment to resale and creating a circular economy as a catalytic force for change amongst traditional fashion brands. I think you'll be inspired by the clarity of vision and the values of Vanessa Barboni Halleck. Vanessa, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. It's a fabulous podcast. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And it would be great if we were in person, but as usual, COVID is uh, putting some restrictions on our physical movements. Uh, you're in the West Village and I am at Neuhouse. So before we jump into your life as an entrepreneur and work in sustainable fashion, we always like to start asking our guests about their their upbringing and their childhood in particular. So from what I know, I believe you were born or you grew up certainly in the Midwest, so often referred to as the Rust Belt, to, if I'm correct, a sociology professor father and an artist mother. So maybe you could just talk a bit about that and their differing parental support and the impact that they had on you. Oh my gosh, what a what a rich childhood. And, you know, I think you never really appreciate it uh, when you're in it, and, and perhaps I didn't really in, until until fairly recently. But um, yeah, my my mother was just such an incredible free spirit, and it used to actually drive me nuts when I was a kid. But you know, really, her own person uh, in everything from her art uh, to the way she dressed and the way that she created community, and just her enormous embrace of curiosity. And, and all things new. And so really, I, I grew up in, in such a kind of world of exploration, even though it was these really small towns, first in Grinnell, Iowa, and then 
subsequently in, in Western Pennsylvania and then Ohio. Um, and my dad, I think, was largely the polar opposite, which was <laughs> which was pretty funny. You know, in certain respects, they, they shared a lot of values, I think politics really more than anything else. But total workaholic, real academic, total stickler for grammar, obsessed with grammar, in fact. And so I really kind of had this push-pull between this free spirit and, and kind of this, um, and this, this, this real kind of stickler who liked to think of himself as a hippie. So it was, it was pretty interesting. And Hold on, a, hang on a second. <laughs> a hippie who's a stickler for grammar. That seems yeah, to be a bit of a dichotomy there. It, indeed, indeed. And, and so I really, I grew up in this household that was full of these tensions. He has a fascinating story. His mother, my grandmother, uh, who actually passed just very recently, she was one of 10, uh, grew up in Colombia, got pregnant out of wedlock, moved to the United States by herself with my father, a baby, and ended up marrying her postman. So she was like the pariah of her family, but then ultimately married um, a very kind of conservative Italian Catholic uh, who then subsequently went to the the Korean War. And so, you know, my dad grew up in this incredibly strict household and then kind of had a falling out after the Vietnam War and really decided to, you know, go a different direction, but couldn't himself be divorced from his own values. And so he was really, and continues to be, I think, a person of significant internal uh, juxtapositions. Wow. What about, well, what about siblings? Is it just your only child or did you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister, uh, my sister Eva, and uh, she's phenomenal. She's three and a half years younger. And, uh, you know, it's funny, three and a half years when you're when you're growing up feels like an enormous age difference. And so in some respects, um, other than, you know, bonding and me kind of torturing her over music videos, uh, we lived kind of parallel, you know, parallel lives as as kids and have become incredibly close uh, as really as, as grown ups and and bonded in a respect over over my mother's death when I was in when I was in college. But, you know, when I think about Eva and I think about myself and our influences growing up, we really did grow up with a sense of the possible and with a sense of idealism. And, you know, certainly for me, this um, idea of kind of problem solving at the intersection of all these different disciplines that we were so lucky to be exposed to, whether that was uh, the arts or technology or journalism, what have you. So I think that's manifested in, in just different ways between Eva and myself. It's interesting the way you describe growing up in that sort of environment. I think a lot of people talk about that time, probably when you were growing up in, in that period, of being a time of infinite possibilities. Do you think kids growing up today feel that way? Do you think we're in a very different environment just now? I, I do, you know, and I, I think about that a lot now. I have I have three stepkids, and I think all the time about this difference in the sense of the possible between the environment that they're growing up in now and the way that that I grew up. And you know, I think that the the world has manifested just the tremendous amount of uncertainty as to what might befall their paths, and so that that's I think quite quite heavy and. This idea of the tail risks being much bigger and the safety net kind of much weaker, I think, is, um, is, is certainly a difference. I mean, I grew up in a fairly volatile household, so I can't say that it was all smooth sailing. But 
nonetheless, I think that the future was one of possibility instead of one, um, you know, laden in many respects with uncertainty and fear. And so I, I certainly think about a lot about that in the current generation. But, you know, I'm certainly concerned about and having three stepkids uh, between the ages of 10 and 14. I, I really I feel that acutely. And it's not something that one can necessarily shield them from, because I think, unfortunately, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember growing up in a time where there was existential threats and risks from nuclear war. And not that we, we still face that today, but there was always that sense of the impossible impending doomsday or end of the world because of some clash between the Soviet Union and the and the West. But clearly there was a sense of optimism and a belief that, the, that we were facing a better future. It doesn't feel that way today. And But I wonder in terms of having parents where you described them that gave you that sense of maybe optimism and belief in possibility, if there's a responsibility on us as adults and parents today to change the narrative for our children and that the responsibility falls on us as individuals and as, you know, whether it be in the home or whether it be in places of work, to take a leadership position and to argue and strive for a better future. Because we certainly are around us faced with lots of dystopian visions of the future. You know, I I think that's absolutely true. And in some respects, I think that uh, it's our job to really go with the changes that the next generation brings upon us. I think that uh, in many cases, there is a sense of anger and frustration of the the world that we've created for the generation that is currently in in adolescence and, and younger. Uh, And so I think that we need to support them uh, in their new ideas and endeavors. One thing that I I think is maybe a particularly American phenomenon, but I know that growing up, there was always this narrative of you as an individual can change the world. And I I think that that's sort of also a a misplaced kind of expectation that we often put on on children. And so I think that there's a a collective energy and an embrace that, that needs to happen in the sense that you are part of the change, but you're also not alone in it. That's, that's certainly my feeling as we go through this transition, which I think is, truly one of the biggest transitions that we've had in humanity, which has gone from this world of growth for growth's sake to one where we really have to reckon with the the damage that that philosophy has has sort of wrought and really think are entirely new models for for living. I think it's a fascinating time, but but one where we really need to come together as generations. Because I've heard you talk in previous interviews about growing up around the whole Earth catalogue, which is something I've never actually had managed to get my hands on. I think it was Stuart Brand's creation and around an environment of con- uh, conscious consumerism. So, I mean, where did it all go wrong for us? How did we end up in the situation of creating a system, uh, created the conditions through which we face our existential crisis through climate. And and we'll come on and talk about the great work you're doing in sustainable fashion to confront some of these these challenges. But I'm jumping ahead a little bit here because I know that you spent a lot of time in banking. Do you think it can be it can be traced back to Milton Friedman and his move for shareholder primacy? You know, it's it's funny. I, I think it, a lot of it really does uh, come back to the way that our value system shifted and the incentives that we put in place. And there's actually a fantastic book um, by the economist uh, Mariana Mazzucato called "The Value of Everything." And um, oh, cool! I oh, don't know that one. Really, su- such a good book. Um, 
it really kind of talks about economic history and these turning points, which in many cases, you know, were not even the things that sort of the neoclassical economists had actually intended. But we, we started to value everything based on the number that you could put against it, based on basically money. And we created these these cultural incentives and we created also these incredibly powerful economic incentives. And I think that those are indeed uh, largely, largely to blame. And, you know, at the same time that we were trying to create these sort of external yardsticks, we didn't put a price on the costs. So we didn't do the hard work of measuring the social costs and the economic costs, um, or rather the environmental costs um, associated with all of these decisions. And, uh, and that is indeed, you know, where we're, where we're now stuck today and, and trying to figure out a different model that creates fundamentally different incentives and also requires a lot of significant cultural shifts. Hmm, that's interesting. So you think we have, as a society, got to the point where we are now counting the cost because we're forced to? I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. I think it's uh, it's inconvenient. And insofar as it's not essential, I think we avoid it. I say that we collectively, you know, humanity, more or less. But now we're really, we're confronted with very obvious costs. And so we can't not start to measure it if we want to reduce it because you kind of, you know, can't, hard to manage what you, what you can't measure. And there are plenty of issues around that, but I think that broadly that's, that's true. And so if we want to reduce these negative externalities, these uh, undesirable costs, then we have to figure out some way of, of measuring them to also measure progress. And I think that that is, you know, that's what we're embarking upon. And there has to be a cultural shift that comes alongside that. I'm going to just jump back a bit because you said that your mother cultivated curiosity. And I'd love to understand a bit more about what school was like for the young Vanessa and if you were a natural problem solver, if, you know, that that cultivation of curiosity that your mum set off in you set you in a certain direction at school and was that sort of talent being nurtured at school and if so, by who? Oh gosh, that really takes me back. Um, you know, I have to say I, I had a really pretty excellent experience with uh, with public schools throughout and, and had just some remarkable teachers, certainly not all, but, you know, many who really took a, a keen interest. I found school fairly easy, which is probably not a great thing to say, but it was true certainly up, up until a point. And then I think when it got to that point, I was like, oh, this is hard and I'm not sure how to actually do work. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was relatively easy, but interesting, easy, but engaging. And my mom would actually, she would, she would let me sometimes take days off of school and just stay home and build things. So as long as I played with Legos, um, a, a few days a year, I was allowed to take a sick day and just play. And so there was really this sort of recognition that constructive play had value, which was really cool. And that, That's brilliant. yeah, it was just amazing. And, you know, I, I think about now, you know, how would, <laughs> how would I respond to, you know, one of our kids who said, oh, you know, can I stay home and play with Legos? And I'm not so sure I would take such a, you know, open attitude to it, but m- maybe I should. Yeah. And I'll bet, and I'll bet your father was sitting around the dinner table going, this play will take her nowhere. We've got to get her grammar right. <laughs> yeah. He definitely didn't know about it, uh, which, which is another thing entirely, but Uh, No, I mean, there was really just this sense that, you know, creativity and play truly had value and a sense of trust in in letting me find my own way. And, um, you know, I I really enjoyed um, 
so when I was in Pennsylvania, actually, it was kind of this old tool and die town. And so in addition to the college, there was also this, you know, incredible technical school. And so we got to take drafting. So I love drafting and metal shop and kind of, you know, building things with my hands, which is partially why I think I, you know, decided at one point that I thought I was going to be an architect. But I really kind of had this, you know, multifaceted upbringing. And then I was able to weasel my way into taking classes at the local college as long as our high school didn't offer the class. And so somehow I thought it was a great idea to take Latin. So I ended up taking Latin at the local college. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there was like the one class that, you know, I could ostensibly take. It was an entry-level class that the high school didn't offer. So, so that's what I did. Um, so I guess it's just to say that, you know, I had a, I had a really good learning environment as, as a kid. Wow. Oh, what was my Latin motto at school? Labor omnia vinci. Work conquers all. Seems like, seems like you embraced that. It does sound like you had an incredibly abundant upbringing in childhood. Was there any scarcity? You know, I think that, um, you know, while, while the influences and the educational opportunities were, were abundant, um, you know, the, the financial health of our household was definitely a bit of a roller coaster. Um, and, and one that my, you know, my parents definitely didn't talk a lot about. So when I was really little, so, you know, when I was born in Grinnell and I mean, my, my parents were kind of just getting their feet under them after, you know, a long PhD and my dad was a junior professor. So there, you know, definitely wasn't a lot of material abundance. And then, you know, fortunes kind of got better and then jobs were lost. And, you know, my parents never talked about it with us. And so, my sister and I kind of learned to observe. So, you know, the year when we couldn't quite afford ballet class or things of that nature. And um, I think that as, as abundant as my childhood was in, in many respects, it probably wasn't a fantastic model for healthy financial management or, relation, <laughs> or relationships. But, you know, the good comes with the bad. And uh, you learn a lot from that, too. Well, it didn't stop you from following a very interesting educational journey. I mean, I've read that you attended UCAL, LSE, Cornell, London Business School, and laterally Columbia. Now, you did say yourself you, you started out studying architecture, which I did find a little bit lateral when I first read that, because I, one, I didn't know that about you, and two, it doesn't seem to be what I would have thought to be your natural sort of inclination. But you've said you like building things, and your mother certainly maybe pushed down that path through the Lego building. But what was the point at which you decided to leave architecture and the building things and, and switch to economics? It's interesting. I think I think I glorified architecture in certain in certain respects. Um, but I really saw architecture as sort of sitting at this intersection of disciplines that I've that I've always just loved. And this idea that you could bring math and engineering to creativity. And, and so I thought that architecture, particularly given how much I enjoyed some of the technical classes I took, would, would be one really interesting path. But I had actually started to really enjoy economics as a senior in high school, had a great professor, and it was kind of a, a way of thinking about the world that made sense to me uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason. And when I got to college, I had a good course in economics at Berkeley my, my freshman year. But ultimately, sadly, my mom committed suicide at the end of my first term at Berkeley. And I just did this kind of subconscious 180. And everything became about kind of safety and taking care of myself and 
that was what ultimately led me to banking. Wow, that's a, a very tough experience to go through at that young age. I mean, how did your family pull together to get you through that? Did your father and your sister? You know, that uh, was really, um, it was an incredible bonnie moment with my sister. I think, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, growing up three and a half years sometimes felt like a lot. And, you know, it was at that point when uh, I actually took a semester off. Um, I was actually planning on taking a, a term off and spending it in D.C. And I just I couldn't stomach it after my mom died. And so I took a semester off. My sister was in high school. She had been living with my mom actually in Pittsburgh at the time. And she and I became super close uh, during that time. I think it was, you know, just the, the pain of the situation, but also just at some point as you get older, your lives become a little bit more similar. I wish that I could say that my, my father was a stabilizing influence, but he wasn't, uh, he really unfortunately wasn't around uh, very much. And so if I'm honest, I was kind of a hot mess in college, but my sister and I got really, really close. Did you look to anyone to either mentor you or support you or, or guide you through that difficult period besides your sister? You know, I think, unfortunately, I was just in, in too much pain and I didn't know how to quite open up. I will say I actually had two pretty fantastic uh, college boyfriends who, you know, when I when I look back at probably wasn't a very easy person to be with, but they, you know, were, were genuinely super supportive um, throughout and, and a handful of super close friends from high school with whom I'm still really, really close. But, you know, I think in terms of mentors and the like, college was tough for me. It was just a really tough few years. And, and there were um, certainly some people who sparked curiosity um, from an intellectual standpoint and, I think that I really saw their passion and what they focused on, which was great. But, you know, I think I really kind of came into my own much more so in my 20s once I was in New York. So what were your thoughts while you were studying economics and did you have a plan to go into banking? No, no, definitely not. I mean, growing up, growing up in the Midwest, banks were tellers and it was like the drive through and you put your money in the little tube and then it went down. I had no idea that investment banks even existed. Um and, you know, I kind of got into it truly by accident. It became junior year summer and I needed to get a job. And I knew I wanted to do something that was internationally focused, but I thought I would do something at that point in some kind of either financial journalism or diplomacy or at some think tank. And I applied for all these fellowships and I didn't get a single one. But at the time, I had also been doing some research um, in the economics uh, department uh, with a professor around energy pricing, of all things, and had co-authored a paper. And I applied to these finance jobs just because my friends were applying. And I managed to get a ton of the finance offers. So that was quite perplexing to me. And I knew that within that world, I, you know, again, I wanted to do something that was international. Growing up in the Midwest, just at least for me, made me want to travel and get as far out there into the world as possible. And I realized that I could focus on uh, foreign exchange and emerging markets and that that could be really, really cool. And so uh, I decided to do that. I took a summer internship. I largely hated it. <laughs> Largely because the pressure was just immense and it was such a huge transition. Uh, but I met some really phenomenal people and, and ultimately my, my first mentor who understood innately somehow that I was really cut out for the job. And so 
he offered me a job on a derivatives trading desk of all places. And I took it. I took it because he believed in me and I was curious. And that was how it started. This was in New York. This is in New York. Yep. So there wasn't there a point at which, given that your upbringing, you've been such a acutely aware of conscious capitalism and growing up with strong uh, values and a personal sense of purpose. Wasn't there a, a moment where you felt some form of inner conflict going into banking as an industry? Yes, it tortured me, if I'm honest, it truly tortured me. And uh, as a result, I, I quit three times and the third time stuck, but I, I had a hard time with it. And in particular, I think I really felt in some respects kind of also not only just my own discomfort, but like the, the weight of like my father's disapproval, right? This kind of uptight, lefty academic <laughs> type. So, no, I, I had a hard time with it. At the same time, I also appreciated that, you know, this is kind of how the world worked. And so I struggled. Yeah. The first time I, I, I tried to quit, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go back and re-explore architecture or maybe I'll do something radically different like immigration law. Uh, the second time I really pulled the plug in 07 and decided to do a degree um, in energy and environmental policy at SEPA at Columbia. Was that before the crash? Uh, that was just before the crash. And that was, that was good timing, wasn't it? Uh, it was actually a very interesting timing because that summer I was doing an internship focused on, on Asia at the Treasury. And Morgan Stanley talked me into coming back and it was like, oh, you know, you can do both. You can do both. And that was kind of like the pipe dream, right? You know, be able to get my master's and and go back to working at the same time. And then the crash happened, and that was totally out the window. And I ended up working 24-7, but it was such an incredible, incredible time to be in finance. Um, and I stayed then for the next 10 years and really got to experience what it was like to actually be an entrepreneur and kind of rebuild businesses that came out of kind of the ashes of that of that crash which was totally fascinating and, and in some respects, I think, really led, led me to what I ended up doing uh, today. So for people who might not be aware of the term entrepreneur, can you explain the, uh, what you were doing internally at the bank to drive entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, basically, I just had the opportunity to, to rebuild and, and build businesses internally, which doing inside at, at a corporation, if you have the right kind of sponsorship and resources is fantastic, because it's a lot of the upside of being an entrepreneur without any of the resource <laughs> scarcity, which is, uh, which is which can be great. Um, but no, I mean, it was an interesting time, because truly pre crisis, um, I was a trader, and it was really about markets and risk and all that stuff. And then Coming out of the crisis, there was this huge opportunity to really build very client-centric, very financially sustainable businesses. And a lot of the people who'd been at the banks pre-crisis weren't that interested in that. And I thought that that was just super cool. And there was also technology starting to be used in a more significant way. And so it was kind of an open playing field that I really that I really enjoyed. And that gave me an opportunity also to, to travel a lot and to, to focus on various different regions. So it was a cool time. During that period where you took on this role of an entrepreneurship within the bank, were you witnessing a change in attitudes and, and willingness and openness to more talk around purpose in business? Because we all talk today about triple bottom line. Did you start to see a sea shift in the, in the mindset of senior people in banking? 
You know, I, I think it's been drifting that way for a long time, but I, I think that truly the, the crisis set us back big time because in the years you know, after the financial crisis, really certainly up through 2013, there was just a huge amount of kind of balance sheet healing and you know, financial markets reform that had to happen, which all of which is, I think, incredibly, incredibly important. But that, that was what took center stage. I think in many respects, uh, it wasn't until the banks were actually in, in decent shape and the economy was in decent shape again before some of these ideas really had the space to actually take hold. Before that, it was a lot of it was just really about um, survival and regulation, which doesn't sound great, but that was what carried the day at, the, at that point in time. And even now, you know, I have to say that I think that the the rhetoric has changed dramatically and dramatically for the better. And I think in, in many areas where you've seen the economics shift, like in the case of energy, where renewables just in their own right have become significantly more uh, competitive, I think that there's real change happening, but there's a lot left to do. There's really, there's a lot more talk and a lot less action than one would hope even now. So I think that we've got some real wood to chop. I mean, you referenced, obviously, the crisis having an impact. What This crisis that we're going through currently with COVID, do you have any thoughts on the impact that this might have? Well, I think, it's, I think it has certainly um, sped up the move toward real integration of environmental, social and, and, and governance uh, factors in investing, so ESG. So I think that we've, we've definitely seen um, that that's been moving fast. I think the seeds for that were sown earlier. I mean, it's, it's hard to even think back to 2019, but we had some pretty serious and severe manifestations of the climate crisis that we're in, uh, just even leading up to COVID. And I think that COVID has further exposed many of the, the lack of social safety net. So I think that it's, it's definitely catalyzed more of a movement toward ESG factors. Um, I think it's given this next generation an even stronger voice and really pushing for diversity and inclusion. So I think that COVID has made it so Many of these things that seem negotiable or seem like nice to haves are, are you know, it's, it's, there's just an understanding that we are in a new space and people have to adapt. So I think that that's really exciting. But I think that the majority of the work, a lot of the work is going to come from grassroots and regulatory change uh, that just has to happen. You know, I think governments have lost a lot of power relative to corporations over the last 20 to 30 years. I think that's going to be where we're going to see some of this shift. What, a reversal, you think? I think there's going to be for, to some extent. You certainly saw it um, post-crisis with respect to regulation in the banking sector. I think you're starting to see it right now with respect to regulation of big tech. And I yeah. think that, you know, if you if you look at COVID, it really deeply exposed how little safety net exists certainly in this country, but in many others, whether that's in healthcare, uh, whether that's what's happened with the gig economy and you know lack of safety net there. I think it's remarkable actually what, what support there's been made available for people who uh, work in a more freelance environment this year. So I, I think that there's been a wake-up call and we are going to see some of that balance shift. Yeah, it is interesting when we hear terms like you've been used like the great accelerator for things like in e-commerce, we're seeing obviously sort of massive acceleration and transformations happening. So it's very interesting to hear you reflect on how it's going to have a positive impact on other areas of society. Let's talk about your 
transformation from when you finally quit and left <laughs> and decided to take a completely different career and, and life shift and go full full steam into entrepreneurship. Um, you picked sustainable fashion. Why? It was such an accident. I mean, in hindsight, you can kind of start to connect the dots, but at the time it was really an accident. You know, I think that if I go back to where kind of the the crumbs were on, on the way on this path, you know, certainly some of them were in my childhood, which we discussed. I think that there were also some in my 20s when I first became vegetarian and was really, really frustrated with the lack of leather opportun- leather alternatives, rather, and this idea of kind of trying to live particularly that animal welfare value in, in, a, in a coherent way. But in any case, when I, when I left Morgan Stanley, it was on sabbatical. They were super generous and patient with me, as, as always. And I, I really did so initially thinking that I was going to shift gears into sustainable finance. So everything that we've been talking about around ESG finance. And that was where my attention was initially focused. And... You know, a funny thing happened because I thought, well, gosh, you know, before I really start to focus on investing in this way, I should I should get a better understanding of really how the major industries are throwing off all of these negative externalities because I kind of got it and, you know, drove an electric car, et cetera, but like hadn't done the deep, deep research in, in some industries. And I found that, you know, unsurprisingly, in things like oil and gas and energy more broadly and logistics, it's fairly straightforward how these industries screw up the planet. But when I got to fashion, I was just floored and really kind of embarrassed by my own lack of knowledge as a consumer. I had very little appreciation for the magnitude of the impact and even less appreciation for the complexity and the nuance and how that man- that impact manifests. So again, like the animal welfare issues are myriad. The environmental impacts range from microplastics to toxic dyes to overgrazing in Mongolia because of excess demand for cashmere. Um, the labor issues are huge. And I was just, I, I just stopped me in my tracks. And I didn't initially think, oh my gosh, I'm going to you know, radically change my career, change my path to focus on this particular issue. I thought, well, I'll just try and put this newfound information into practice as a consumer. And I found it borderline impossible. I mean, it was just exhausting, even on a sabbatical. It's taking three hours to do research on a t-shirt, and then you end up with something that you don't even like to then trying to say, well, I'll scrap buying new things and only buy, you know, secondhand, which, you know, has its benefits, but also good luck trying to find something fairly straightforward that you're going to wear every day. And I just, it became this information I couldn't unknow. And I'd seen how impactful some of the challenger brands have been in other consumer verticals. So certainly food, but increasingly in, you know, beauty, other consumer products, and they really had uh, a tremendous amount of power in shifting norms in consumer expectations and oftentimes had a pretty decent financial exit as well because oftentimes they're bought by strategic. So I looked at the opportunity set and the problems in the industry and thought, you know, I think that there is a, there's a need for an outspoken brand that can model a different way. And this this is very interesting because it's a real pivot because if you had gone into focusing on sustainable finance and looking at, yeah, the whole sort of environmental, social and, and governance, 
factors. And wouldn't you have been in an amazing position to identify best of breed companies and uh, and divert investment to them and help and allow them to be great accelerators of change? But instead, you made the decision to take it on yourself and create a brand that would be industry leading. But that's a brave and bold step to take because the easy one would have been to just to slip into what you've done and what you knew best. And you threw yourself completely into the unknown. I totally did. And and I think that, you know, the naivete is definitely uh, helpful uh, in, in that regard. Uh, but no, I, I, I definitely did. And, and I will say that when it comes to public equities and public investing, once you're a public company, it's harder to change. And so a lot of the change agents often actually are private companies, uh, not all. And so that's kind of in some respects like where the action is. Um, increasingly, we're starting to see the big ones really start to move the needle, which I think is really exciting. Um, but I felt and I continue to feel that there's a huge amount of of opportunity in the private space where companies aren't yet listed and can can do some fairly disruptive things that are that are important for the rest to follow. So you didn't consider venture capital? Um, you know, I really felt passionate at the time about building a solution. And so I I didn't explicitly think about it as a career choice, although I have been doing values aligned early stage investing in the venture space on a personal level, uh, which I which I'm quite passionate about. Um, so I kind of got to dip with the toe in both both waters, I suppose. I mean, you talked about just the the complexity of the fashion industry when it comes to sustainability and the negative externalities. I mean, I think it's fairly well known that it is the second largest polluter in terms of industries after oil and gas. But the, a lot of the the facts around uh, what's really going on are obfuscated by the greenwashing of many global brands, famous, uh, obviously, the brands that we are all used to, the high street brands. Could you describe what you're specifically doing with your brand, Another Tomorrow, and how you see this as being potentially a counterforce to drive, maybe drive change and, and a force adoption of different behaviours? And the reason I mention it is that I heard Elon Musk talk about about, you know, why he does what he does with his his businesses, you know, whether it be Tesla or whether it be the Boring Company or whether it be SpaceX, it's to confront existential threats to humanity and the planet. But the but, particularly with Tesla, he believed it would be the only way of driving radical transformation and acceleration of change within the motor industry. And I can sort of draw parallels between that and what you're doing with Another Tomorrow. So I'd just love for you to just maybe unpack the work you're doing and the standards that you're you're adopting. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super happy to do so because especially, you know, I, I think that where one has to be careful in the sustainable fashion space is is kind of in this supply chain vanity world, right? Because it's a fairly fragmented space, and I think that one individual brand's supply chain is not going to radically change the world. But what it can show is it can show what's possible. And for us, a lot of it came down to necessity initially. So, you know, we ended up um, largely because of concerns around animal welfare, starting to build one of our first supply chains all the way back at the farm level. And the beautiful thing about that is that it actually forced us to really know what the heck we were talking about. And we had done tons of desk research and, you know, looking at like best, best practices and what the work was that various nonprofits were doing. But we actually had to roll up our sleeves and build these supply chains back to the farm, back to the raw material level where so much of the 
the impact happens. Um, but then we thought, okay, how can we actually really move the needle in terms of other brands' behaviors? And that, to me, is principally in two areas. One is transparency, because the industry is incredibly opaque. So we thought if we could bring true transparency in how our supply chains are constructed, that that could be quite essential in starting to shift consumer norms about the information that's communicated and really combat greenwashing. And the other is is also around uh, new business models. And so we decided early on that we would own our own resale, and which is something that you know the, the the large brands in the luxury space have been really uncomfortable with for a long time. But I felt that it was really important for individual companies to start to have different incentives, different economic incentives. So by owning one's own resale, all of a sudden, if you create garments that are really long lasting, they have value on the secondary market. And you can also start to create alternate revenue streams that don't require just selling more and more and more new stuff. And so for me, it's really about utilizing technology to really enable transparency and to enable these new business models that I think are, you know, are the game changers. Wow, that's really innovative. So when you sell to your customers, and let's say, it's a, a sweater. They've worn it for a couple of years. They can return it to another tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we will we put it up on our own site, and then uh-huh. and then when it sells, they get a portion of the profits, and we get a portion of the profits. So it really creates this kind of alignment and creating really really long life cycle garments. And the cool thing is that the same technology that we use to create supply chain transparency, we also use to authenticate the product for resale, which to date has been one of the biggest challenges in resale has been counterfeits. And so for us, by having a QR code on the garment, you can scan it as a consumer or see the supply chain, but we can also scan it when we when it comes back to us and make sure that it's ours and and then put it up on the resale site. So we're we're really excited about this. Yeah, that's really exciting. It's extraordinary. So you could be setting an industry standard for other brands to follow, whether it be a Patagonia, which I could easily see being put on a reseller market, but suddenly making brands much more respected, desirable, aspirational as a result of this and creating a a genuine circular economy. That's that's what we're really excited about. And if you think about impact, you know, just by extending a garment's life by nine months, you reduce the impact um, of that garment really quite quite dramatically, depending on which metric you're looking at, you know, between a third and, and a half. So imagine extending that garment's life by something like 10 years. You know, really, I think that the biggest challenge of the industry is just massively oversupplied market. You know, we're just producing way, way, way more clothing than the world needs. And so if you can really start to put a dent in that, then, then that's a serious part of the solution. Wow, that's incredible. So so when did you launch? So we launched at the end of January 2020, so January 28th to be precise. Solid six weeks before COVID really hit in earnest yeah. in, in the US. And it's been, uh, it's been a fascinating year. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. So we'll, we'll come and talk a bit about the, what the, the, this year's been like. But you've given one example there, a brilliant example of genuine innovation in what you're doing in the business and driving innovation and new standards in the category. I've heard you talk about how you described what you're doing as being at the intersection of uh, design, sustainability and technology that serves the customer and the planet. 
Can you talk about just the complexity that you've had to confront and solve to be able to be in that position and to have things like QR codes on the garments, to be able to have reseller marketplaces? And what were the, the main barriers that did you have to overcome? You know, the, the really interesting thing for us is that the technology turned out to be the easier part of the equation, but it was actually having the data set behind it and the degree of supply chain control that allowed it to happen. So that was where the real work took place. And I think that, you know, for us, we were in the luxurious position of starting from a blank slate. So we didn't have supply chains and we were able to actually build them from, you know, in many cases, the farm up. And so we had an incredibly rich data set that underlied you know, how every single product uh, was made. And so the technology just enabled us to be able to expose that for the consumer, to be able to manage it for ourselves, and then ultimately to be able to you know, authenticate the product for resale. I think where the incumbent brands have challenges is, in many respects, the, the opacity that the consumer experiences with respect to you know, how clothes are made is in some ways mirrored by the companies. In, in so many areas, there were agents in the middle and you know, large companies might have, you know, relatively little idea how their how their items are actually being made. And so for us, it's really been about visibility and control that's allowed us to use this technology that's pretty readily accessible now to make it to make it useful. And are you having conversations or have you been connected to any major brand that's willing to listen, that's willing to pivot and to, to take your lead? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of movement, which is really exciting. You know, we've been a part of um, of a lot of different conversations, and I'm I'm super grateful to to be at the table as such a young brand. But I think that there, you know, you just have to demonstrate what's possible. And and I'll say that there, are, you know, there are several that came before us that I think um, have been paving the way. Certainly, Patagonia is one. They've had worn wear for a while now, which really demonstrated this sort of second life concept in a slightly different way. Um, Eileen Fisher, certainly in other respects, I think has has done many great, many great things. And and so I think in both of those cases and, and in ours, you know, it, it piques curiosity and it shows that it's that it's doable. So it's a it's a really exciting time. And I think that people are meeting the moment with a lot of curiosity and drive, whereas previously there was maybe I don't know, a little bit of complacency or cynicism. So I think we're in a we're in a great moment and a very collaborative moment. Did you ever anticipate the the complexity and how daunting the journey would be when you started out? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had no idea. And I think that that's one thing that There weren't people there warning you saying, Don't do this, Vanessa. You'll never you'll never achieve it. It's an impossible task. There were, and yet I I, I didn't hear it? I don't know. I can't describe it. It's, it's, I think it's one of those things. And I hear it a lot from other entrepreneurs, which is, you know, you're just so driven that you're just going to do it kind of no matter what. And I, I don't think I had any idea that trying to do this would, you know, lead me to a small farming community in Tasmania, you know, six, six months later. But it's what we had to do to get the job done. And so it was honestly really kind of one foot in front of the other. And I had no idea how challenging it would be, but we just met every challenge kind of one at a time, which is sort of what we continue to do. But now, now with the benefit of a lot of hindsight, but it's, it's exciting what you can do if you just are a bit stubborn about it. Hmm. 
the term sustainable is used so loosely. How do you actually go about setting metrics to allow yourself to be able to set your own targets and either achieve them or, uh, or exceed them? How did you go about doing that? Because again, that couldn't have been, that must have been uncharted territory in its own right. You know, and it, and it still is. I think this is where the science and the measurement behind all of this is still really in an evolutionary stage. I think that for us, there are two aspects. So we focus on human, animal, and environmental welfare. And in, in some respects, well, very clearly in two respects, it's easier to measure. So on the animal welfare side, it's it's really quite crystal clear what we use and what we don't and why. And so that's easy to measure. Similarly, on the human welfare side, we mandate um, that all of our manufacturing is done on a living wage basis, and we can verify that. So I think that is, you know, those are, are relatively clear cut. I think on the environmental side, it is genuinely quite challenging because um, sustainability is very, very local. And a lot of people measure their impact based on something that's called a life cycle analysis, which is not particularly accurate in many cases, quite expensive to do. So it's still it's it's still a bit tricky. And so for us, we continue to just focus on, you know, best in class sourcing and on local verification. But being really candid, the measurement piece is very much still still an art a little bit more than the science and one that we continue to struggle with. Are you having conversations with people that you might have worked with in the past in sustainable finance to discuss ESG strategy that would help them guide and influence other brands claiming to be more sustainable? Because there is a bit of a push-pull factor going on here that if you could if you could have your standards embraced by investors and whether even the B Corp movement could embrace what you're doing, say, to anyone that's in sustainable fashion, you have to live by these standards or you have to be guided by these standards. That's maybe when you would start to see some form of real acceleration of change. Is that is that feasible? Yeah, you know, I, I think that you really hit on a very important point, and which is I, I think that there needs there does need to be a harmonization of standards. And and one of the things that um you know I, I really looked at and sort of in, in hindsight in terms of, you know, why was it that we were able to source where we source in these you know various different levels of supply chain? And in many cases, regulation is honestly the underlying factor. And I think that that's going to continue to be the case. And so that's where Europe is just you know light years ahead of many other places in terms of imposing those standards. I think for investors, yes, I, I've had uh, I've had conversations, particularly with respect to the apparel industry, because I think that, on the investor end, oftentimes they're also at, you know, 30,000 feet. It's very different investing in public markets in some respects than private markets. And so there have been sort of educational conversations around, you know, what the key issues are. Um, I think that the, the difficulty is that from the investor side for large companies, um, sustainability is at the moment in part gaining steam because people are looking at it as a risk. So not so much as the moral do the right thing piece of it as, oh my gosh, if things don't change, you know, your business model or your core business is going to be negatively impacted by, let's say, climate change or regulatory change or what have you. And I think that the challenge for fashion is that in certain respects, some of its most negative impacts 
haven't yet seen those risk factors manifested. And one of the ones that I'm most motivated um, by is actually on the labor side. So the the stats vary, but you know, by and large, it's thought that over 90% of garment workers don't earn a living wage. And yet, you know, day after day, we have these scandals on the front of papers, whether that's, you know, slave labor or child labor or what's happened with, you know, orders canceled in Bangladesh. And consumers have largely shrugged. And so I think that, you know, for investors to really get serious about some of these issues in fashion, they need to see what the downside is for not having change. And I think we're starting to see some of that in the form of regulation in Europe that's going to start holding companies much more accountable for what happens in their supply chains you know, outside of their their country of headquarters. But, you know, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. What are your hopes for the industry in terms of hitting the, the Global Goals 2030 target? Because I, I heard a, an interview, or it might have been a blog piece by the founder of women's fashion brand Adore Me, co-founder uh, Romain uh, Lott, and he said that the industry was way off its meeting its targets for 2030. How's there going to be um, a turnaround in that if we are going to even have a chance of hitting those targets? Will it come Will it come from this regulation that you're talking about? I think it has to. I think it has to. You know, I think that uh, even if you look at, for example, like a caring group, which has been, you know, quite vocal and focused on sustainability, it's equally focused on growth. So to the extent, if not more so. So to the extent that these incentives for growth for growth's sake um, persist I think the only thing that is really truly going to stop this is regulation Um, but behind that regulation is culture and so I do think that normative shifts in individuals behavior and culture are what enables you know regulation with teeth but these big public companies are not going to get there on their own they just aren't. You mentioned about the QR code. There's an element of storytelling in there because people can learn about the backstory to where their garments have come from. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think you said about regulation, but it's also cultural change. And I think it's a power of storytelling. There's something, uh, there's a real latent power. And it's not something anyone necessarily thinks of if they buy it, that there's this little barcode. And if you scan it, the, the, it unlocks a, a completely new world that, and opens people's eyes to the reality of what's behind and what's underlying the, the garment they're actually going to end up wearing. I mean, we all know the power of people wearing, wearing the story when it comes to something like uh, Nike and the belief that there's an athlete in all of us and people buy the brand values as much as they buy the product, if not more. And I think that's where the real power of transformation comes and for real acceleration with what you're doing. If that can become another standard that if people expect, if you don't have on your brand mark, a scannable brand mark that tells its backstory and its sustainable uh, footprint, you could then start to see a radical shift in people not wanting to wear those brand marks. So I think there's something in what you're doing that could be exploited to drive change and, and an, an expectation on, on consumers as well to expect their brands to deliver this. I, I think so. And I, and I really hope so. And uh, I, I do think that this is an area where 
the luxury segment really has an opportunity and an imperative to, to set a standard. I think it's interesting that we're not seeing that uh, as as much. But I do think that this is where the norm shifts uh, can can be really significant and where I think that there are also other kind of subliminal shifts where we're reconnecting ourselves with where the clothes that we buy or anything that we buy actually comes from. Because, you know, we talked about sort of the the promise that we saw, you know, grow, growing up, but really what was happening over that period of time was that everything, all these supply chains were just blowing apart all over the world. And, and we became less and less and less connected um, with where things actually came from and the humanity and the uh, nature and the resources behind it. And so I think that there's an idea of of standards, an idea of storytelling, and an idea of just, you know, pure reconnection that we're trying to reestablish. Because if you go back to, you know, the 80s, the majority of clothing that people bought was probably actually manufactured fairly close to where they lived. Yeah, true. So not in Scotland. <laughs> I'll say maybe, that now. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. There's actually some, some, robust, uh, some robust industry that's still there. I know. I know that my aunt or my my mum uh, my mum's aunt used to knit my my sweaters for me when I was a kid, but that's about <laughs> as close as it got. Um, where do you want to be in five years? Oh, what a great question! We want to be a sizable company that really can can make material change and continues to innovate at this intersection of sustainability and design and technology, serving a customer base that is curious, that cares, and that, you know, expects their product to actually make a difference in the world. Um, but we will grow insofar as our positive impact grows alongside us. And that's something that is very, very important to me. So my ambition is to have some heft in the world. Um, I certainly appreciate, given my background, that financial sustainability is what enables a lot of other uh, positive things. And so we're really excited about the landscape in front of us. I mean, it's it's brilliant, but you've got a real balancing act there because you've got to balance your mission for education and activism with innovation in itself and keep the business moving. How do you how do you juggle or how do you strike a balance across those different imperatives? For us, it's about being welcoming to all. So we really think that our our business has three different pieces of it. One is obviously the product, which I view as modeling what's possible in terms of product transparency and business model. But then there is the education, the activism, which I don't think require any compromise. So the education piece is there for the curious. I don't believe in guilting people into learning, but we hope that again, you know, we can leave some crumbs along the way that inspire people to learn more. And we have tremendous amount of information and resources, both in the sustainability section and the magazine um, on our site. And then I, I also think from an activism standpoint, there has been a tremendous focus on conscious consumerism, but really we're citizens first. And so we're very excited about the activism part of our site being a very welcoming place for everyone, whether they buy the clothes or not, and a way to really make some of the substantive change that you know you and I spoke about that will ultimately really move the needle. Oh, it's very it's very cool. So if they want to go and visit uh, the site and read about your product, your education, your activism, they just go to anothertomorrow.co.co, correct? Perfect. We always ask about serendipity. Now, you've talked a lot about coincidence and uh, a little bit about just chance and circumstances, but where has serendipity played a key part along your journey? 
Oh, gosh. And in so many respects, I would say in particular with respect to people, you know, when I first embarked upon this particular journey, I didn't know. Well, I take that back. I knew one person that worked in the fashion industry. It was my college ex-boyfriend's sister who worked in fashion PR in, in Paris and still does. And she's wonderful. But I didn't know anybody else. And so I was very lucky in being introduced to some people who really mentored me and helped me along the way in the early stages. And it was kind of just this you know, snowball effect of being introduced to this wonderful community who just wanted to help. And that was how I met so many people that I continue to work with today. So I think that's been a huge one. And even going back into, you know, earlier in my career, the only reason I ended up in finance was really, frankly, that one mentor of mine as an intern who just believed in me. And so I think that there are these there are these people that, that you come across in your life and whether they play a long role or they pay, play a transient role, I think that serendipity in many respects is very, uh, is very human. As an entrepreneur, risk, uncertainty, ambiguity, fear, failure, they're all part of the elixir. How do you deal with this when you've got something like another tomorrow? You know, there's no, tomorrow there's something else that might, you know, you, as you said, you launched in January and six weeks later, who could have predicted uh, the uncertainty of a global pandemic that would potentially <laughs> unsettle and, and sink your business. How do you deal with it day, day by day and, and stay focused? Meditation. Honestly, I, I think it all comes back to that. A lot of things have gone out the window, uh, my social life in particular. I suppose that's true of all of us in COVID, but uh, certainly true of mine well before that. But really, it's, you know, it's meditation is the one thing that I just do, you know, pretty religiously twice a day, 30 minutes. And um, that is what gets me through and keeps me, I think, kind of anchored to the universe. It kind of keeps the noise level down. And it really helps you embrace change instead of trying to steel yourself against it, which doesn't mean that any of what you just described is in any way easy. I still live the roller coaster of being an entrepreneur, but it's what steadies me for sure. Wow. So 30 minutes a day. I mean, when do you uh, when do you actually do your meditation? Do you have a sort of strict regimen when you do it? The morning, yes. Uh, so the morning I do um, whenever I wake up. And uh, I'm a very early riser still from my finance days and sometimes even earlier than I would like, just given that there is still some residual entrepreneurial stress. But the morning one always happens really like the minute I wake up. Um, the evening one is always the tricky one. Um, so the ideal time of day to do it is actually around four, I find. It kind of gives you like that second wind, but I find that more often than not, that's challenging. So this evening, I'll be probably doing my second meditation closer to like 7.38 is my guess. That's cool. I'm, I'm fascinated because I love hearing people's uh, meditative practices. Do you do it uh, sitting in a chair? Do you have a certain place where you go? For a long time, I did. Uh, for a long time, I would do it um, sitting in this one particular chair um, in, in my bedroom. But what I realize is that particularly if I wake up really, really early in the morning, uh, like this morning, I woke up at just an obscene time. Um, it created some kind of friction to feel like I had to get up and go to that one chair. Imagine like the room's a little chilly. And so I've sort of chilled out about that. So I actually did mine this morning sitting up in bed. And I found that... Um, that's the best way to do it. As long as you commit to the practice, it matters a lot less to me sort of where I am now. But initially, I think it, that sort of habit of being in the same place was a nice, uh, was a nice anchor. 
that's good. Makes me feel better. I'll be doing that because <laughs> it is these cold winter mornings. Yeah, you got to kind of, you know, loosen up a little bit. But I will say I struggled with um, with meditation for many, many years. I always felt like I was doing it wrong. And it wasn't until I came across uh, Vedic meditation that it really like clicked for me. So I, I really uh, empathize with anyone who's struggling with a meditation practice. Cool. Well, they can take inspiration from you. Before we get onto the quickfire questions, I know you've got your meditation to do tonight. I don't want to hold you up. Not only are you working on building a, a new global sustainable fashion brand, you're also taking on a, a, another small uh, task, a local initiative in uh, New York City. Could you just give us a quick overview of what that is? Yes, it's called Back the Neighborhood, and I'm really excited about it. And this was also one of those kind of things about planting seeds. You know, I moved to the West Village of about five years ago. And it was just clear that, you know, in particular, the retail sector of this neighborhood and many others was just falling apart. And there's a real disconnect between the goods and services that were being offered and what the local community seemed to want. And I was really frustrated by this. And basically any corner that would kind of go empty, a bank would pop up, right? And, you know, you see that even even now in many parts of the city because kind of the only one who could pay the rent. And so started to really think about, you know, was there a way to knit these neighborhoods back together and support what residents needed and support local commerce and jobs? And I kind of just came up with this idea of, you know, back the neighborhood. And, and at the time, I was really focused on um, on actually maybe landlords wanting to engage and, and the incentive that they might have to bring in more financially sustainable businesses because they were connected to the community. And I have to say, I did, a, I did had a few conversations and, and I got a bunch of eye rolls. And so I kind of just parked it, but um, I did buy all the <laughs> all the URLs first in kind of every different format. And uh, when COVID came along, I just knew that there was, you know, there was really clearly something there and it was more urgent um, than ever. And so, you know, back to the neighborhood, which I am working on with three amazing people, yourself, if I may say so, Elaine, uh, your partner in crime, and a wonderful soon-to-be student at uh, Stanford University. We are really focused on diagnosing the problem and really understanding what is the fabric that's been frayed and how do we knit back these communities and based on what we learn uh, we're really excited to start putting some of this into action but it goes back to really the idea that no single person is going to do this alone that this is a very collective effort and that it's got to be about real problems and real solutions so we'll see where it takes us and if people want to go and follow they go to backtheneighborhood.com and backtheneighborhood on instagram yes indeed and also, if people want to follow Another Tomorrow on Instagram, what's it's just Another Tomorrow? Just Another Tomorrow. Okay. Right. Uh, quick for questions. I'll be pretty quick. Um, what principles do you stand by? Respect. I think that uh, if you stand by the notion of respect, most other things fall into place. That's a nice one. We could do with a, a bundle of that across the nation at the moment. <laughs> yes. Um, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but did turn out to be the right decision down the line? Oh, gosh, so many. Um, you know, tactically as a business, uh, looking at COVID and the uncertainty, we had to make a call about what we were going to do about inventory. And we slashed that by half, which felt like, you know, a, a really tough decision to make uh, at the time, but ultimately has given us 
a tremendous amount of uh, of flexibility. That's maybe not the deepest answer for you, but it's it's the most recent one. And then I think just otherwise, quickly on a more personal note, I think when I first uh, got together with my now husband and my stepkids, who at the time were fairly young, it was just putting them first above all else and not looking back. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Oh, you know, COVID has kind of put a cramp in things a little bit, but I like to go to (laughs) sort of unexpected academic talks and seminars on topics that I know nothing about and just sit in the room and absorb. So that's my very, very favorite place. I found it a bit more difficult in COVID, but I'm now going into books and often older books. Ah, interesting. No, I heard anyone say that about going to, uh, when obviously there are places you can go to watch live events. That's a really good one. I like that. It's very curious. Aside from your focus on sustainability, what other one large problem is worth solving? Healthcare. I think that the healthcare disparities and the access to healthcare um, on an affordable basis in this country is just a flagrant disrespect of human rights. Yeah, that's good mental health particularly for people from history you can bring round to your table in the west village uh, for dinner time travel them there wherever who would you have around that table to plan for a better future tomorrow you know i've thought about this one a lot and i actually think i would just love to have kids around me students it's the fresh perspective and uh, that's where i'm looking to inspiration right now very cool. I like that. What question? Uh, no one asks you that they uh, that you wish they would. Well, you know, you really asked the question. Funny enough, really about how how um, I address the you know uncertainty and the fear and the failure. And you know, I, I can't say enough about meditation. So that's the question. I'm so glad that you asked it. Okay. Who makes you reevaluate yourself? Oh, the mirror. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I yeah. think uh, spending a lot of time with myself in COVID, um, you know, you're really forced to look at your own shit and get really tired of it. That's a good one. Not had that answer before. I like it. Uh, impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's uh, got to graduate, uh, study, start a business, maybe <laughs> a sustainable fashion business that's got a goal and ambition to change the world? But it's been told, forget it, that's impossible. Um, I say define what is the worst thing that could happen. And if you're comfortable with it, then go for it. Succinct and to the point. Good. Um, Finishing off with these questions. Bit of fun. What is your go-to karaoke song? When karaoke (laughs) bars are open. Uh, This one I've taken from my husband. It's his favorite song, which is I Will Survive. (laughs) How pertinent. Uh, Best recent uh, film uh, or documentary series, something you've watched in lockdown on any of the streaming services? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm happy to give you something that sounds a bit more esoteric, but I laugh daily at the show Community. Oh, I don't know that one. Community? (laughs) so good. Okay. I'll check that one out. Um, I thought you might have mentioned Industry, that new one about the bankers in London. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, No, not yet. Not yet. Oh, I think you'll enjoy that. Yeah, it's... uh, It'll probably bring back some memories. What book would you like us to offer listeners that come up with the best comments on Instagram or on the website? Uh, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena by Anthony Mara. It's just an, it's an incredible, it's just an incredible book. 
constellation of vital phenomena by Anthony Mara. Okay, we'll check that one out. And、uh, the final question: Who should we interview next? Julia Watson, and she is an incredible academic、uh, designer. Landscape architect、uh, who wrote this amazing book called "Design by Radical Indigenism," and it really questions how we think about progress and wisdom. And I just adore her. Great. Well, if if you wouldn't mind making an introduction at some point once we push your your interview live, it's always the best way. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure.、Um, we would love to interview. Her. Yeah, that's great. Well. I、uh, just round up and thank you very much for your time, and、uh, just acknowledge you. Oh, so many things. Clearly, your drive and tenacity in doing what you're doing. I, I'm totally speechless at just the incredible work that you've been doing. Your leadership in this category and how your social conscience is clearly part of that drive, and your commitment to radical transparency and unerring fearlessness in the face of uncertainty and a radically changing and terrifying world at times. So we will certainly be following your story. More and I can speak for myself and Elaine to say we're honoured to be working with you on Back the Neighbourhood. But I think we're equally fascinated to see where another tomorrow goes and how that is going to set the gold standard for sustainability in fashion. Well, thank you so much. So, it's, thank you. It's such an honour to well, be part of the podcast, and I think the work that you're doing is incredibly, incredibly important. And、uh, you know, all of this dies in darkness, and I, I totally appreciate it. And it's. A huge pleasure to work with you on Back the Neighborhood as well. I've learned a lot through from you throughout the process. Cool. Well,、uh, thank you very much, and better go and get that chair set up for your、uh, <laughs> evening meditation. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed, it awaits. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at the Impossible Network or email us at info@theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.